today on the Dental Experience Podcast. My passion, my goal in life from this point forward is to make sure I'm the last healthcare professional that goes to prison for things I didn't know. This is what went wrong. This is what went right. Answered hello. And I said, hello, who is this? And they said, and what insurance will we be filing for you? During the next three years, I was investigated. $17,899.57. To determine my guilt or innocence. This is the Dental Experience Podcast. Here's your host, Ryan Vett. Welcome and thank you for listening to another episode of the Dental Experience Podcast. I'm really excited to have a guest with me today, Dr. Roy Shelburne, who provides a lot of insight in an area that I frankly stay far away from. I, Whenever I consult for offices or speak, I talk more about practice growth and patient experience, but I typically stay away from anything that has to do with billing or coding and proper record keeping. And that's why I have Dr. Roy Shelburne on the show today. Welcome. Right. Thanks. I appreciate your having me. Of course. Well, I want to first start with uh, the fact that I think you have a really neat story about how you opened your dental practice. Um, it was kind of sentimental almost. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, I graduated from dental school in 1981. Um, both grandparents passed away on the same day two years before I graduated. They owned wow. a family business, a hardware store. Um, their passing was very unexpected and um, the building had been empty for a couple of years and I had intended to go back home to practice so I actually opened my practice in that hardware store that my grandmother and grandfather had started and um, had worked in from 1926 forward. Wow that's incredible so growing up I guess you had been in that store quite frequently. Oh absolutely I had I spent a, a good number of hours with my grandparents kind of rolling around in the in the aisles and kind of playing around so yeah it, it was it was my home away from home actually that's neat what was it like converting that to a dental practice i mean that's a, a fairly drastic change yeah it actually was fairly simple the the building had a basement um and also had apartments upstairs uh, had a very high ceiling as in most hardware stores of the time the equipment went in the basement. The ceiling was dropped with a drop ceiling and um, opened the door. Saw my first patient on July the 27th of 1981 and honestly was in the black the first day I opened my doors. It was pretty phenomenal. Um, was born and raised wow. in the area, of course, and um, went to school there, um, went away to college at the University of Virginia, then dental school directly after in Richmond. Um, as soon as I got my license back, the practice was ready. I initiated the, the conversion and build out before I had graduated. So as soon as my license became effective, I had it in hand, malpractice in place. I saw my first patient and uh, was busy from the get-go. Wow, that's absolutely incredible. And at some point in all of that, you volunteer a lot at mom's clinics, and you also were a short-term missionary to Honduras. Is that correct? I did that for a number of years. Um, whole okay. family went to Honduras as far as that goes. My wife was a nurse. My um, children uh, also went along with us and provided either support in the clinics or um, in the – they had Bible school for the, the children there in the areas where we went. We would – fly to Tegucigalpa. Uh, we would spend the night in a missionary house. We'd get on a bus and they would take us out into the middle of nowhere, 
generally sat up in a school in an area and we provided care um, to the, the families there. Also interesting, um, usually took veterinarians as well in that part of the country life was supported to a great extent by the animals that they own. So the veterinarians were every bit as, uh, as busy as we were in the dental and medical clinics. Wow. That's fantastic. So you practice for, for quite a number of years. And then as I opened the show with uh, billing is encoding and record keeping is often something I, I hand over to someone a little bit more experienced. And I would say in October of 2003, you you probably got a little bit more educated on, on that side of the world. Do you mind sharing your experiences with the listeners? Oh, sure. Um, in October of uh, 2003, I'd flown to San Francisco, California. Actually, I was at the American Dental Association meeting there that year. I'd flown out the day before it started, was listening to the keynote speaker who that year was Rudolph Giuliani. Um, he was speaking on leadership and Probably two-thirds of the way through that presentation, my phone began to vibrate, and I looked, and it was my wife that was calling, and um, I thought it might have been an error, maybe a butt dial or, or something like that, because she knew I was in this meeting and wouldn't have interrupted otherwise, so I closed my phone, and Giuliani finished his presentation, and as everybody else started to pour out of that meeting, I called my wife. Um, her first words were, Roy, are you sitting down? I don't know if you've ever gotten a call like that before, Ryan, but it was pretty disconcerting. So there were all kinds of things going through my head. And I said, Debbie, do I need to be sitting down? And she said, Roy, you need to be sitting down. I said, what happened? And she said that James had called. She was visiting my daughter who was at Virginia Tech at the time, so she wasn't home either. But the uh, a friend of ours had called. Um, he was my custodian to alert Debbie that the FBI was at my office. They'd battered down my back door and were in the process of carrying out all my records. That was not a good day. Wow. No. So I, I got, I got in a plane, I flew back home again and I got home probably nine 30 that evening. I drove past my office and it was surrounded by crime scene tape and a lot of FBI vehicles surrounding the building. Wow. What was going through your head at that point? Good golly. I, I, you know, I was kind of numb. I was in disbelief and um, could not, for the life of me, understand what was going on. Um, before flying home, uh, as soon as Debbie had allowed me, well, we'd had a conversation and hung up the telephone. I actually called my office, and it was a Friday, so I didn't expect any staff to be there. But somebody answered the phone, and the person who answered the phone answered, hello? And I said, hello, who is this? And they said, who's this? And I said, I'm Dr. Shelburne. I own the office you're, you're in. Can you tell me who you are and what's going on? And the person introduced themselves as an FBI agent and they had wow. described that I was a target of a healthcare fraud investigation and that they had uh, executed a search warrant and were gathering evidence to determine my guilt or innocence. Wow. That's absolutely incredible. And I think that is probably many clinicians worse nightmares and getting that phone call is probably something that they think would never happen but they're also very scared and aware that it, it could happen at what point did you realize sort of what was unfolding was it at that point the phone call or you know what happened after you got home yeah i, I um, met with my team the next day to find out if anybody knew what was going on they didn't um you know at the time i w had paper records um had computers had the schedule in and I had the um, 
treatment plans in so I knew who was scheduled to come and then what we had diagnosed, but we had no records otherwise. But yeah, during the wow. during the next three years I was investigated pretty aggressively and learned what the allegations were during that time and um, became more aware of a lot of things that I wasn't aware of prior to. One one thing that I, I was not aware of was the legal definition of intent to defraud. You know, you could intend to defraud if you submitted a claim for a patient you never saw for a treatment you never provided, of course. But in a legal area, the definition is much broader. It includes instances where if you continue to make the same mistakes and not have systems to identify and correct those mistakes, from a legal standpoint, that's considered intent to defraud, and you can be just as guilty as if you sent a claim in for a patient you never saw for a service you never submitted. Wow. And you often say ignorance is no mm-hmm. excuse, and I think, I mean, that, I, I, I love that line. Yeah, literally, I think that's probably no, somewhat what happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, my, the person who was responsible for doing my billing coding was um, asked during the trial did she ever make me aware of any payments that were received that she deemed inappropriate or um, in error? And her response was no. But I was also asked, mm-hmm. were there any systems in place to identify and correct any errors as they were made? And the, my answer was no, because we had none. So um, that, by definition, is blind disregard and intent to defraud. Wow. And based on your experience, because you consult a lot, you speak all over the nation and, and you write a lot. Do you do you find that most offices are sort of in the same boat where they, they don't have these systems and processes in place or, or where do you feel most offices are? No, I um we we sent the same allegations. There were hundred and ten instances. I was I was charged with one count of healthcare fraud, was charged with racketeering, five counts of money laundering and structuring, and sent the allegations for the patients to um, 12 different dentists to try to identify individuals who would be able to provide expert testimony on my behalf. Every one of the 12 came back and said that there's nothing I was accused of that hasn't happened in their office. So does it happen frequently? Wow. Absolutely happens all the time. Um, the thing wow. that I also, when I speak, I, I speak uh, quite a bit and I'll generally ask the question, how many practices have the seven point compliance program in place that is mandated mandated if you accept any kind of government reimbursement and that could be medicare that could be medicaid that could be uh, reimbursement for federal employees reimbursement for uh, dependent of active duty it's mandated if you get any government kind of reimbursement affordable health care act is included in that group that you have a seven that seven step compliance program in place and i have had in um, probably 2,000, 3,000 um, attendees over the course of maybe six months. I've had one individual that raised their hand that they had that compliance program in, in place, and I asked them, what prompted you to do that? And they said they were the target of an investigation as well and learned that it was necessary. So this is something that might may or may not be widely known, but should be widely implemented. What are some practical tips? Well, could you talk a little bit more about the seven-point sure, sure. process and then how, how someone can go and making sure that they are uh, as prepared and secure and compliant as they need to be? Yeah. N- number one, you need to determine that you're going to do the assessments. Number 
two, you're going to have to put together your standards. So you have to develop the standards. Number three, you're going to have to have a, uh, a person who's in charge of the compliance program. Um, additionally, you're going to have to put in place the what is going to happen in the event that you aren't compliant. You're going to have to put together the different stages of the compliance program. And finally, you're going to have to have implemented if those individuals who do not meet the standards, the training that's necessary, and if they're not able to conform to those standards and to meet the requirements established by the practice, they're going to have to be terminated. And is that, do you help offices implement that? If someone were to reach out to you to get more insight, do you help put programs together and implement those programs? Absolutely. That's, like I said, this, between the billing and coding, you know, I, 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 I a lot of speakers say they don't want to scare you. I'm not that guy. I want to terrify you. <laughs> but I also want to give you, the, I want to give you the tools to be able to implement programs that protect and defend. But I've not seen an office that there's not an opportunity to also increase reimbursement because there are things that are being missed, and it all hinges from documentation. So that if you document appropriately, establishing the medical necessity for that that, ser- that service that you've provided. Um, it's easy for the person to do billing coding to do it correctly and to provide the carrier all the information they need to approve the claim. So the same thing that will protect you will also maximize your reimbursement, and I'm all about maximizing legitimate reimbursement. So it all goes hand in hand. And like I said, if you do it correctly, when you establish a system, some pushback I get is go, that's going to take so much time. Honestly, once you put the systems together and your templates and you got everything in order, it makes it so much simpler and much more efficient and easier to, to do once it's implemented. Now, I'll tell you, putting things in place can be challenging, but if once they are, it makes it so easy for everybody, the clinical team to make the documentation, the people who do the billing and coding piece to be able to have all the supportive information they need to send that claim in, and there's no delay, there's no denial, there's no appeals necessary because they understand exactly what was done, why it was done, and on the other side, what the insurance company requires to in, or, in order to establish that approval for that service that you've provided. I think that's so important. Often when you try to put in a new system, the team might not always be behind getting into that new system because it's complicated or it's something different and we all get so familiar with our routines. But A, it's important because the repercussions could be fairly severe. But second, as you just said, sometimes the growing pains are just the growing pains. And once you're through that trial, your office can run more smoothly. You have better documentation and it's actually easier for everyone at the end of the day. So there's no reason someone shouldn't implement systems to to protect themselves. And I can give you an even better reason as well. If the team is a little bit hesitant, they can be named in any action against the practice as well. And there have been actions against practices where the team members have been named in that action as well. And there have been team members who have gone to prison as a result of their lack of compliance. So when you're charged with racketeering and money laundering, anyone who receives any type of reimbursement payment uh, salary from that practice can be named in an action. So, wow. yeah, not only is it important for the doctor, but they can also come in and 
indict everybody involved, anybody who received a check from that practice. So is it important for everybody? Yes. Not just from a financial standpoint, but there is a great um, benefit for everybody being on the same page and everybody being as diligent and as comprehensive in their um, their treatment of that particular area of the practice as possible. That's good. So I know you've learned a lot about billing and coding systems the difficult way, and you probably are one of the foremost experts in the dental field, and I, I love that. But I think more than that, you don't just talk about you know billing and coding and record keeping. You do talk about what it means to be a person of character and finding strength. And I think you, you've drawn some of those conclusions from the time that you spent and you had to reflect. Do you mind sharing a little bit with the listeners that side of sort of what you share with your audience. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, as a as an individual, I think we sometimes take for granted that our position is always going to be one that can't be taken from us. And I learned in the process, there were a lot of things that were taken from me that I thought were important. They were financial. They were material. I lost all that. Um lost my practice, lost um, everything that I owned because I was found guilty of racketeering and money laundering. Um, they mm-hmm. confiscated everything that we owned and we forfeited that once we were, um, once the guilty verdict was found. And um, I, I, I learned there's more important things in life than stuff. I retained the love of my family and friends. And to me, that is priceless. Hmm. Knowing that, that you have people around you that love you and care about you because of who you are, not what you have. Um, I think that's invaluable. And Ryan, can I share you share with the listeners the numbers that were involved as well? Oh, please do. So um, did we get paid monies that we weren't entitled to? Yes. For example, this was before 2005 when there were two codes for extraction, simple extractions. There were first extraction code and there were additional extractions done at the same appointment. Um, kind of like PAs are now, first PA and additional PAs taken at the same appointment. There were two separate codes during that period. And occasionally, although this didn't happen all the time, if we did three extractions, I used the code, I being as the practice, coded that as the initial extraction 7110 and the second and third also using that same code when it should have been a 7130 and the reimbursement would have been, I think, $2.64 lower for the second and third. Um, we did extractions, obviously, but we coded it incorrectly. And because we got paid $2.64 more for the second and third, and we didn't catch the correction, that was considered intent to defraud an amount we got that we were entitled to. So busy practice. Wow. Uh, they did... Um, they did an evaluation over six years, the six-year period. There's statute of limitations varying depending on the state or the the locale. Six years was the statute of limitations, so they went back six years from the date of search and seizure. Um, we were paid $3.5 million during that period for the services we provided for the patients during that period. And the prosecution during the sentencing determined the amount and the amount of the $3.5 million I got that I wasn't entitled to was $17,899.57. That's 
that was 0.01% of the amount that I had received during that period. And I thought that was a pretty good error percentage. Yeah. But that made no difference. And even though we were able to establish we had provided treatment, we should have billed for, didn't bill for, and got paid for, in excess of that amount, it didn't make any difference. Wow. So they went after just the items. $17,899.57 of the $3.5 million. And you'll never forget that number. No, I know. Wow. So I guess story to that is no amount's too small. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Roy, let's listen to a a real-life call of someone that calls in to discuss insurance with an office and see uh, how offices handle it. I know it's a common question callers get, but let's listen to this call real quick. The call you are about to hear is a recording of an actual call that occurred between a real patient and a real practice. In some cases, the names or voices have been altered or changed to protect the identity of the caller. Thank you for calling Pediatric Smiles. This is Sandra. How can I help you? Hi. I'd like to make an appointment. It's going to be for a first-time patient. Okay. Welcome to our practice. How old is the child? She's three and a half. Okay. And what insurance will we be filing for you? I'm sorry, could you say that again? What insurance will we be filing for your child? Um, United Healthcare. We're out of network with them, honey. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Well, what a wonderful call, and I think uh, insurance is definitely a big hot-button issue that a lot of people feel that as soon as someone is out of network, that's a, a lost cause. But today I have Amol from Patient Prism. He's the CEO there. He hung out on an episode at the beginning of the season and talked about Patient Prism and what they do. But Amol, do you want to talk briefly about what a Patient Prism does? And then let's analyze this call and give the listeners some tips on how they can avoid some of these objections that come up in their sure. practice. Sure, sure. And Patient Prism is, is really an advanced call analytics called tracking and call intelligence platform that analyzes phone conversations very quickly, uh, employing artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, and, and provides feedback, especially if the patient doesn't schedule the appointment within one hour uh, so that something can be done about that call afterwards. Right. So uh, patient calls doesn't schedule an appointment. Our systems, our machines go through analysis. Our human coaches sitting here in Tampa and uh, make sure that information is accurate that the machine is provided within one hour you get a visual alert that shows you this is what went wrong this is what went right and along with some coaching videos that provide you training on how to handle that call properly when you call the patient back Um, so all of that happens in a 60 minute window and basically it gives you a second chance of making that first impression by trying to get that patient back in the chair. So let's talk about this specific call. I mean, insurance, out-of-network insurance is a huge, huge issue. How would you go about talking to this team member that answered the phone? How would you go about trying to analyze this call and help them make sure that this ends in an appointment? Right. So if Patient Prism System actually coached this call, we call them call coached, uh, the first thing we would say, the first note we would make is do not assume that this is a lost opportunity just because the caller has out-of-network insurance. Very, very important point to remember for all your callers. Uh, we, we think that money is the most important factor in making that decision. It, it is an important factor, but it's not the most, right? Uh, what matters is is uh, is earning trust with the patient, uh, you know, making them feel that you are the best people to deliver the best quality care at an affordable price. That's what's important. And again, going back to what I said in my first segment with you was, you know, you got to build empathy, right? You got to build trust and you have to talk to them about, welcome them to the practice, ask for their name, ask for their child's name, 
right, build that relationship and show and, and find out why the child needs to come in you know right. are they seeing this how long have been has it been before they saw you uh, you've got to keep a positive tone of voice at all times right uh, instead of just jumping into this insurance conversation right off the bat um, we have to say that you know what we do have a lot of patients with your insurance for example and and we may be out of network with your plan but the reason why people come to choose to do business with us uh, is because of the high quality of care we provide and we will still work with your insurance company to maximize the benefits right mm, that's, that's really great. important we will file on your behalf so you don't have to worry about any paperwork the important thing is to get your child in to get their dental needs met and that's really important uh, and then go on right away to offering that appointment a morning or afternoon kind of talk do a small talk about hey when when do they go to school when they when, when's their school over we can fit them in uh, based on your convenience so again offer an appointment time and and, and empathize with them again of understanding where their school is at have small talk about oh that's a good school if you know about the school like oh that's wonderful um and then uh, and redirect the patient right redirect the entire conversation to to taking good care of your child um selling, uh, making sure that you are emphasizing how amazing the dentist is, the doctor is about uh, patients uh, like like him. And and, and really, uh, if there is any concerns of affordability, also mention of, about discount plans and anything else that could, you know, alleviate their concern about this might be inexpensive because it's out of network. Absolutely. Well, Mole, I really want to thank you for your time and for sharing a call uh, that you guys recorded with us and with the listeners. I think this insight has been very beneficial in overcoming uh, a common obstacle and understanding a common obstacle when it comes to insurance and out-of-network insurance. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Ryan. This was great. This call and its analysis is brought to you by Patient Prisms. Learn more in the show notes at www.thedentalpodcast.com. That front office team member didn't seem to want to close that deal uh, after it was they were being asked about insurance. Roy, what's your experience in uh, people calling in and asking, do you accept insurance, and how do you handle that? Well, first, do not assume that the insurance question is specifically about insurance. A lot of times patients don't that's not their main concern. They, that's the only question they know how to ask. But number one, always be truthful, but number two, get to know your patient first because you need to know the motiva- motivation, why they're calling. And the insurance company, it may be a, a valid question or it may not be. And it, a lot depends on the practice. If you only file the insurance for the patient, the, um, the, the payment goes to them, You conversation would be something like, we see a lot of patients with that insurance, but have found that because of the the issues associated with that insurance company, our doctor has decided not to participate. And the reason being is that plan has a lot of limitations that restricts our practice from providing you the care that you may need and deserve. And our doctor doesn't feel comfortable doing that. Be happy to provide the insurance information for you so you can submit the claim and they will reimburse you. We will help you through that process. We'll um, accept payment from you. And there again, depending on what your practice is like, if you want to offer a uh, in-house plan, then that's fine. Or if the payment in full, or I would also give them the payment options if you do provide options. Secondarily, if your practice is one that submits the claim and accepts assignment of benefits to that patient, 
I would say we have uh, an individual, I would name them, whoever that is, Mary on our, our team who loves insurance. She will do everything possible to be able to provide the highest reimbursement for the services that you have provided by our practice. But to be totally honest with you, we're not in network, and the reason why we aren't, and I would use the same um, the same reason as you would for not accepting assignment either. Our doctor does not feel limited or feel comfortable having the insurance company dictate the treatment that you need to receive. That's good. You'll get your benefit from, and you'll only pay us the difference between what the insurance pays and what we charge. Technically, we aren't in network with your practice or with the plan, but we will do everything to maximize that benefit. We have lots of patients in our practice who have your plan and are happy about the level of service they are provided over and above other practices who may have chosen to be in network and provide that limited service for your treatment. Well, that's a great response. I, I appreciate that, Roy. And I would love, as we wrap up today, you shared a lot about your story, and I appreciate that. But you, you have a lot more that I know you share, and you lecture frequently around the nation how can someone get a hold of you to either get more insight into their own practice or find where you're speaking? How, how can someone best get a hold of you? Um, best is to go to my website, which is just my name, Roy Shelburne, R-O-Y-S-H-E-L-B-U-R-N-E.com. Um, there'll be a number of resources there where you can get information about where I'm speaking as well as um, some of the topics that I provide and services that I provide. Be happy to help in any way. If you want to reach out, The there's email contact information there. If you have specific questions about specific issues, be happy to respond to those well. My passion, my goal in life from this point forward is to make sure I'm the last healthcare professional that goes to prison for things they didn't know. Hmm. That's good. That's good. Well, I appreciate your time. And is there any other last-minute quick advice or Anything you want to share with the listeners? Uh, Ryan, I just want to thank you for reaching out to me and um, inviting me to be a part of your podcast. Congratulations on providing services to an industry that is is very, very astute and geared toward improving what we do. Love to be a part of that. Love to uh, provide that information. And thank you for allowing a platform so I can be able to do that. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and experiences. It was great having you on the podcast. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the Dental Experience Podcast. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Dental Experience Podcast. For show notes, to ask a question, or for more information, visit www.thedentalpodcast.com. The ideas discussed during this episode are the opinions of the participants and do not serve as legal, financial, or clinical advice. Until next time, this is the Dental Experience Podcast.